Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. Today is a commemoration of a very important event, which of course is the resurrection. So we're going to be talking, we're going to have a, a resurrection kind study. What we're going to be talking about will be related to the resurrection and what the resurrection actually achieved and accomplished for us. And so the title of our study is Some Better thing for us. And of course, this uh, rests solidly on the resurrection of Christ and, and what Christ accomplished for us. So this is kind of the backdrop. I want us to keep that in mind as we delve into our, into our study and uh, what this better thing for us uh, really is. There is one chapter in the scriptures that lists the heroes of faith. It's kind of, it's kind of the whole uh, the you know, the honor roll, I have, there's an honor roll there on the wall, but in the scriptures, we have the honor roll of, of the faithful. You know which uh, chapter I'm talking about in the Bible? Okay, Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is this uh, honor roll of the faithful. Let's go to Hebrews 11, because <clears throat> this is a favorite chapter among many people. A lot of people I know uh, actually memorize Hebrews 11, because it's a very encouraging chapter. It lists all these wonderful heroes of faith, uh, many of which we aspire to be like. Uh, we would like to emulate. We would like to perhaps even have a tidbit of the faith that some of these people we read about in that chapter have. And so it's a popular chapter for that and many other reasons. But uh, in this chapter, there is actually a very strange and puzzling verse at the very end of the chapter. And this is where the title of our study comes from this morning. So I want to explore this verse, this couple of verses, and I'm going to look at verses 39 and 40 of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, beginning with verse 39. After listing all these heroes of faith, Paul says, and these all having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. I want to think about that for a little bit here, because in listing all these heroes of faith, the conclusion that Paul comes to here at the close of the chapter is, they were lacking something, correct? There was something that all these great and wonderful heroes of faith did not receive. This something called what? The promise. Correct? And then it says, God actually provided some better thing for us. And so this is what we want to look at today. This is what we want to explore a little bit today. What is this some better thing for us? How does it have to, what does it have to do with the resurrection, which today we are uh, commemorating? It's a resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is this promise. I don't know if you've ever wondered about this particular verse or how much time you've spent thinking about it as to the meaning and intention because it actually changes the entire focus of the whole chapter and the context of the chapters around it. Paul has a particular point that he is making in listing these heroes of faith and he lists some really big names. He lists there, you know, some of these names he begins with the uh, with Abel, and there is Noah there. Enoch is listed there. That's a pretty big... Moses, Abraham, some really big heavies from the Old Testament. And he says, you know, and I don't have time to list all the others. And, and he, he said, he's basically picking the cream of the crop, so to speak, the most outstanding characters of the Old Testament, and puts them there in a list altogether, a very impressive list. And then he ends by saying, all these great and wonderful people were lacking something. They did not receive something called the promise. And God prepared something better for us. Something better than what? I want you to think about that. God, he's, he's making a contrast here, and he's, he's trying to inspire the readers of the Hebrew epistle, the epistle to the Hebrews, trying to inspire them with something that they have that perhaps they're not realizing. Perhaps they're missing, uh, or perhaps they're not comprehending, and he's trying to remind them of that. And this is the point he's making. So the same goes for us today, because that's the same 
promise made for us. Anyway, we'll see it as it develops, but this is the, the background that, that we want to see the, uh, the mindset of the author of this particular chapter. This better thing or this promise has to do with being made perfect, correct? As it says there in the last verse, the day without us should not be made perfect. So this, this promise that they did not receive, this better thing that we have has to do with perfection or has to do with being made perfect. Now, I, I, I'm not doing any injustice to the text. I'm just simply reading what's written, okay? And we're doing just an exegetical, trying to examine exactly what is there. We're going to have a question time at the end, so don't stress. But keep your questions. Maybe they'll be answered throughout the, the course of the study. So... <clears throat> uh, Mentioning all these uh, heroes of faith, what is this promise that is spoke of, spoken about? The promise that he's referring to here is this singular. He refers to it as the singular. In the chapter, he talks about promises, but he's talking specifically at the end about the singular promise called the promise. There is one single overriding promise in the scriptures that is the epitome of all promises. There are plenty of promises in the scriptures particularly in the Old Testament. But there is only one promise that qualifies to be called the promise. That is the, the big one, the, the most important promise of all. Any idea what that promise is? Given to Abraham, okay. Eternal life, okay, yes, yes, very true. Paul records it. Yeah, Paul records it. Let's look at it in the scriptures. That's exactly right, Galatians 3. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 3. We'll get into the topic now as we look at this particular promise. What is this one promise? Galatians chapter 3. Before we, uh, well, let's read it and then we'll make some comments. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. Paul says, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. This is, according to Paul, this promise, when this promise was made to Abraham, it was the preaching of what? The gospel. The, whole, the gospel promise is contained in this promise called, in thee shall all nations be blessed. Now, who was that referring to? It was referring to the seed that would come of Abraham, and that seed, of course, we know is Christ. In other words, the promise, the ultimate promise of the whole Old Testament is in Christ, there is going to come a blessing to all nations. And of course, that's the blessing of eternal life, like you said. That is the overriding promise in all the scriptures. Every other promise is subject and subordinate to this promise. Without this promise, all the other ones are really invalid and, and not, that, that's, that's the key promise. And so Paul is saying, this promise, the promise, was not received by all these heroes of faith in the Old Testament. That makes perfect sense because none of them lived to see Christ when he came to this earth. Because that's what uh, in your seed shall all nations be blessed means. It's when Christ comes as the seed of Abraham, as the son of man, he would bring about this blessing. You with me? And so the promise does not have to do with land. It does not have to do with an inheritance of the promised land. That's a sub-promise of this main one of in thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That's important to keep that distinction. It starts all the way in Genesis, of course. That's the, the running theme. That's the promise that's a running theme throughout the whole, uh, the whole scriptures, particularly, of course, of the Old Testament. And so this promise again, has to do with perfection. And we want to see how that relates to us as well. Let's look at uh, how this is again explored further. Acts chapter 13. Let's turn back to Acts 13. Paul preaching again, and he reiterates the same thought. Verse 23. Of this man's seed, according... Sorry, of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior... Jesus, again, he's referring to the same promise, and now he's saying this promise is fulfilled. When was this promise fulfilled? When God raised a Savior, Jesus. Referring to what event? Incarnation. 
Raise, raise throws us off here because we immediately think of, oh, raise means resurrection. No, to raise a savior is, is like to bring up. And, and that was from the birth of Christ because the promise was the seed of Abraham would be born. So the birth of Christ as the seed of Abraham would be the fulfillment of that. And so he says, God fulfilled this promise. He raised unto Israel a savior, Jesus. Drop down to verse 32. Using the same language again, he repeats the same thought. Verse 32. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it's also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Again, here this is not talking about the resurrection. This is a very commonly misunderstood verse. This is talking about the incarnation. And the incarnation is the fulfillment of the promise because the promise that was made to Abraham in your seed, that is in your offspring, will the nations be blessed. The promise was not about a resurrection. The promise was about a birth of a particular person, Christ, as the seed of Abraham. So here Paul is saying, God fulfilled that promise, not to the fathers, but to who? As it says in the verse. God, in verse 33, God has fulfilled the same unto us there, Children, you can start to see what Paul is talking about here when he lists all the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. And he says, all these did not receive the promise. God prepared something better for us. And that has to do with being made perfect, as we shall see. We're just establishing here some sequence. And then the next verse, verse 34, talks about the resurrection, of course. We're going to come to that in a, in a little while. We're not focusing that. We're first focusing on the particular event of the birth or the raising of Christ as the seed of Abraham. I have a question for you, and I think we already answered this question, but I'll ask it anyway because it's a good thought question. Did Abraham receive this promise? Or let me rephrase the question. Did Abraham see the fulfillment of this promise? Okay, let me rephrase the question even more specifically. Did Abraham experience and live the fulfillment of this promise that was made to him? Let's look at John chapter 8. We have yes and we have no. That's always good to, it's always good to have mixed answers like that. John chapter, John chapter 8. And I think you know what verse we're going to read now. John chapter 8, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was? I was glad. What was Christ referring to? His day was right now. Christ, Christ was on earth. Abraham saw that in vision or prophetically. But Abraham did not experience it. Abraham did not receive it. Abraham saw it afar off, and he believed it, and God rewarded his faith. But to Abraham, it was a promise that was still to come in the future. That future was when Christ came on earth. And so he eagerly and earnestly looked forward to it and repeated this promise to his children and their children. And this became the whole theme of the believers in the Old Testament. Their earnest expectation and longing was looking forward to the time when this promise would be fulfilled. That's why the preaching of the apostles, uh, they emphasized time and again, listen, this promise is now fulfilled. This promise that was given to the fathers is fulfilled. The seed has come. The blessing promised to Abraham, in thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, is here in a person, in the seed in Christ. That's why when Jesus told uh, his disciples something, I think we know this verse, uh, and one time he was speaking, speaking to his disciples and he told them, there are many righteous men and faithful people of all ages who wished to see the things that you see, and to hear the things that you hear. But they didn't. Remember that? So there is something that when Christ came, brought about some amazing, incredible event that was the longing of all the nations. That's really his point. That's the emphasis. And, and this is really what is being emphasized in Hebrews chapter 11. The contrast of the time of the promise and the time of the fulfillment of the promise. And that has to do with being made perfect, as we saw. That's really the, the point that we want to emphasize. That's why Paul, of course, when writing Hebrews, uh, 
that promise has been fulfilled. That's why in the book of Hebrews, throughout the book of Hebrews, he keeps emphasizing looking unto Jesus. We now have Jesus. We see our high priest. He is emphasizing the fulfillment of this particular promise. Now, this aspect of being made perfect is really the key to help us understand precisely what is being talked about here. Because there's some, uh, you know, uh, differences or disagreements. Some people say, oh, Paul is talking about this promise, or Paul is talking about that promise, or he's not referring to this. Whatever he's referring to has to do with being made perfect. This is the key that helps us understand correctly what he's referring to. We already saw what the greatest promise is, but this is, serves as a secondary key, so to speak, to confirm that. Uh, something that could not make perfect before, but now could make perfect. What is this thing? Hebrews answers this particular dilemma. Let's look at that as we uh, think about it a bit more. Hebrews chapter 10, being made perfect. What does that mean? Hebrews chapter 2, Sorry, not, not 10, 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. And before we read verse 10, I want you to think about this for a minute. When Paul says that they without us should not be made perfect, it means that the perfection of these people listed in Hebrews 11 is dependent on who? Okay, the verse says that they, without us, should not be made perfect. Correct? So the perfection of them, or they, depends on who? Us being made perfect. You with me? And the implication, obviously, is that they are waiting to be made perfect. Is that right? I'm getting some extremely strange, puzzled looks <laughs> looking back at me. That's okay. I'm really uh, challenging the brain cells here. But I'm just going by what's written. Let's just think about it together uh, and go by what's written. Paul says, God prepared something better for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. There is a perfection that does not happen in stages. Everyone's going to be perfected together, but that is dependent on the us being made perfect. They cannot be made perfect without us. That's the point that he is making in this verse. I'm just reading a text. It's not, it's not uh, that uh, you know, difficult, but maybe we're not used to thinking of these people this way, and so that's why I'm throwing it out there slowly so we can chew on it, and hopefully as we progress, it's going to make, start making more sense. So just keep that in mind. Let's see what Hebrews 2.10 says before we get stoned up here. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Speaking of Christ, for it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Christ Jesus was made perfect how? Through sufferings. Meaning that before that he was not perfect. Now I want to say carefully, clarify, Christ was perfect as the divine son of God, but as a human being. His humanity and that experience was perfected through suffering. That's why he had to come as a man. And being as a man, he suffered, and through the suffering, he was made perfect as the second Adam, as the last Adam. You with me? Now, him being made perfect was not just for him. Let's look at a few other verses. Hebrews chapter 5. Let's progress through the book of Hebrews a little bit. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9. Just following the same theme of perfection, because that's what he's referring to in Hebrews 11. Chapter 5, verse 9. And being made perfect, that's Christ, being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Okay. He was made perfect, being made perfect. What enabled him to be made perfect? Through the things that he suffered, he was made perfect. And so being made perfect, now that qualifies him to become what? No, Christ. What happens when he was made perfect? He became something. What? He became the author of eternal salvation. 
I'm really getting us to think about what's written, to really read the verses slowly and think about what's written. In other words, when was eternal salvation authored? Okay, after Christ came and was made perfect and rose from the dead. That's what enabled him to become the author of eternal salvation. You with me? I'm just reading what's written. You, you, you might be uncomfortable. I, I don't want to discomfort anyone. But if you're uncomfortable with the conclusion, I'm just dissecting the verse. That's all I'm doing. So I'm happy to have a little discussion time afterward because it's good to think about these things. But he became the author of eternal salvation. Christ did not author eternal salvation before he became a man. Christ promised eternal salvation, but salvation was not authored. It was not carried out. It was not made real. It did not become fulfilled until Christ was a man, and as a man, he suffered, and he was perfected, and that's how he became the author of eternal salvation. And you have to keep that in mind because it's in chapter 11 where Paul says, listen, all these people died in faith, having not received the promise, because God prepared some better thing for us. Are you starting to see what the better thing is? It is this that is contained in the seeds in Christ. But what does it have to be, do with being made perfect? We see Christ has been made perfect. He became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey. Let's go to the next verse in the progression, chapter 10. Chapter 10 in Hebrews. There is a case being built here, and we're just following it through the book. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. What does him being made perfect have to do with us being made perfect? Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Very interesting verse. Very deep verse. By one offering. What offering? Okay, I'm going to go to my timeline here, my favorite uh, teaching aids. Okay, cross of Christ is central. And right after the, the cross, of course, here there is the resurrection. And here is the day of Pentecost. I'll put 50 here to help us see that. Birth of Christ. Uh, as you can imagine, I, I'm studying... <laughs> Uh, my recent study over the past few months has, has a lot to do with this. This, this feature is large in a lot of the stuff I talk about because it's, it's really hit me like never before. This is by far the most important event ever in the whole history of the universe. Everything revolves around this event, the birth, death, and resurrection of Christ. And so it, when we start seeing that, you know, you see a lot of things in, in their true perspective when you look at it, uh, from this from this angle. But anyway, uh, so it says, by one offering on the cross, he did something. What did he do? In the, in the verse, Hebrews 10, 14. He perfected forever them that are sanctified. sanctified. So Christ's sacrifice perfects his people. Correct? That's why in chapter 11, Paul is emphasizing this aspect of perfection when he says that they, that's the people who lived before that time, that they, without us, who are living on this side, they, without us, should not be made perfect. The people who lived before that time did not have the offering of Christ that perfects forever yet, did they? They had a promise of it, correct? But they did not have it yet. They looked forward to it. They anticipated it. That's why Paul says, all these received not the promise. God prepared this better thing for who? For who? For us, because we happen to be living on this side after the realization of the promise. And therefore, living on this side and this offering that makes perfect, therefore they, without us, being made perfect cannot be made perfect. 
In other words, the fruit of the sacrifice and the work of Christ, unless it is realized and fulfilled in his people, cannot bring about an end to the whole problem of sin and the whole plan of salvation and the whole finishing up of everything. These people, brothers and sisters, are waiting in their grave for something. Correct? There's a few exceptions. I know some of them already went to heaven, but Paul is dealing with their sojourn on earth when he talks about these particular things. All these people are waiting in the grave for what? They're waiting for eternal life. How will they get eternal life? It's been promised to, to them. They're all waiting for the last group of people living on earth until they get to a certain level, which will then allow God to finish up the work. That's why they, without us, cannot be made perfect. And so that's why Paul emphasizes this particular aspect in the gospel, well, in the epistle. It's, it's like a gospel, really. Epistle to the Hebrews. Let's go to chapter 12. <clears throat> chapter 12. Notice his emphasis here again. Hebrews chapter 12. First two verses. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. Christ, as the author and finisher of our faith during his sojourn on earth, he authored and finished our faith. That's what enables us to be made perfect, to be perfected, as we shall see. I'm going to go a little bit closer at that in a minute. <clears throat> and uh, let me make the statement here, another startling statement. You ready? <laughs> I'm making a few today. This type of perfection, brothers and sisters, that Christ accomplished here was not available before he accomplished it. Correct? It wasn't. Let's look at Paul's argument to that effect in the same book, Hebrews. Let's go to chapter 7. Because that, that's what helps us understand the, the, the end of chapter 11. When we look at everything he says on the subject in the same book, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19. For the law made, how much? Nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. The law, when he talks about the law, what's he referring to? The, the, time, of, the time period where people were under the law. What time period is that? During the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. It says the law made what? Nothing Perfect. He's making a contrast here. But the bringing in of a better hope. What's the better hope? The promise. The seed. In thy seed shall all nations be blessed. The bringing in of that better hope did. Did what? Did make perfect. That's his point. By which we what? Draw nigh unto God. Okay? You see, he's making a contrast here. A contrast that has to do with perfection. Let's keep going. Chapter 9. We're building up again towards 11. We're just following chronologically in Hebrews, talking about the same thing. Chapter 9, verse 9, which was a figure for the time then present, talking about the Old Testament sanctuary and services, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. It says here, during this time, during this system, there were gifts and offerings offered sacrifices, but they were not able to bring about what? Perfection. They could not make him perfect who did the service. Interesting. Let's keep going. Chapter 10. Next chapter, first verse. Chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. You see the point he keeps emphasizing here time and again. 
He's saying there was a time, there was a system, there was this time of the law and sacrifices that could not bring the people to a certain point that he calls being made perfect. And then, you know, we, should, we read it in chapter 7, we read it in chapter 9, we read it in chapter 10, and then in chapter 11, he launches into all the names of all the fine examples of people who have not been made perfect. You understand now what he's doing? He gives you an honor roll of all these greats, all the greats of the Old Testament as evidence that the best among them still did not receive the promise. Because God prepared this better thing for us and it has to do with perfection. That's, that's the sequence, that's the theme he's painting in the book of Hebrews. And so someone might say, well, you're a very... Very brave young man there, you know. Are you suggesting these people in the Old Testament were not perfect? You know, that's, that's a very audacious claim. That's a very bold and outrageous claim. And I realize that. I'm just, I'm just going by what's written. And, and I'm going to explore that hopefully and, and, and try and, and clarify it uh, as, as best as I can. But there is a perfection now, brothers and sisters, that results from the sacrifice of Christ that is called a better thing for us. It actually enables us to reach a level that was impossible to be reached before the cross. And I know that Enoch is in heaven. I'm well aware of that. And Moses and Elijah. But despite that, there is, yes, there were very important exceptions. But despite that, there is a certain level. And this is what I want to explore a little bit today. What makes the difference? You see, the coming of Christ is the shedding of the blood or the life of the everlasting covenant. When Jesus, in the Last Supper, which is just two days ago or, two, or three days ago, he gave his disciples the cup and he says, take drink. This is my blood of what? The new covenant or the New Testament. And my blood means my life. This is my life. And then he laid his life on the cross. And like today, he rose from the dead. That's the new life. That's the life that makes perfect. That sacrifice. Because look, when it talks about the sacrifice of Christ, the cross here is a package. The death uh, and the resurrection of Christ is a package. The death is really meaningless to us. Make that straight. Is meaningless to us without the resurrection. The resurrection is the seal of that sacrifice. Life. It's when he received life. And when he received life, he did not just receive life for himself. He received it as a man on the behalf of humanity. That perfect life is what we believe today when we talk about Christ in you, the hope of glory, when he sheds his Holy Spirit or his holy life. That's what we believe that life is. It's the life that he lived here as a man, perfecting an experience that overcame sin every single time. He lived a life that was never lived before, correct? Zero sins committed. Name one person other than Christ who accomplished that. It was never seen before. Never even with a thought. And this brand new life, this brand new experience that was lived, Christ offered that life and takes it now as a resurrected human being and offers that to us. And that life can enable us, brothers and sisters, to reach a level of perfection that before the cross they looked forward to. They anticipated. They longed to see with their eyes and to hear with their ears, but they didn't. Because God has prepared some better thing for us. It has to do with being made perfect. It's a beautiful picture. You see, brothers and sisters, we do not realize what we have in Christ. We really have no comprehension. Because if we did, things would be very different. Christ is risen. Today we're celebrating his resurrection. We're celebrating this life, this key ingredient of the new covenant. Abraham dreamed about that. Enoch was in heaven waiting for thousands of years until that would happen. Paul says God prepared some better thing for us. I want to talk about perfection a little bit. Because... <clears throat> Uh, when, when I made the suggestion, you know, the, the people in the Old, Old Testament time, and the people mentioned in Hebrews 11, you know, were they perfect? The answer is yes, they were perfect. And the answer is also no, they were not perfect. 
They were perfect in one sense, and they were not in another sense. I want to explore that. And that's best perhaps understood in... Let's look at a verse, and then we can comment on that. Matthew chapter 5. This is a familiar verse to us. Let's look at that. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 48. Very popular verse. A lot of people like to quote this verse. Matthew 5, 48. As soon as we read it, you say, oh yeah, I know that verse. Matthew 5, 48 says, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is heaven is perfect. Have you ever thought about that verse? You know, that verse can be understood correctly and be a great blessing. That verse can be understood incorrectly. It can be a great curse. There's a good author that commented on this verse. It says, just as God is perfect in his sphere, so we are to be perfect in our sphere. Can we be fully perfect like God is perfect? No. But Christ says, be therefore perfect as your father is perfect. If you look at the parallel verse in Luke, you will find that he actually says, be therefore merciful as your father in heaven is merciful. He's talking about a character trait. He's not talking about us reaching perfect power, perfect knowledge, perfect understanding, perfect comprehension, perfect abilities like God has. Some of these things are totally impossible to us. And so that's a wrong way to read it. God, Christ is not saying, be God, be God in yourself. Be perfect like God is perfect. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about be perfect in your sphere of existence. Reach your full standard in your sphere of existence just like God is perfect in his sphere of existence. You with me? In other words, maybe we could put it in this words. Uh, Christ was talking, and we're going to look at another verse to that effect, on, about what we would call relative perfection. I'll say it again, relative perfection. I know this, this might be a bit of a controversial subject or topic, because sometimes we believe in absolute perfection. But according to Christ, he taught very clearly, and he believed in relative perfection. In other words, you reach the maximum of the circumstances and the conditions that are available in your sphere of existence. Let's look at it in Mark 4. I'm getting these looks again. and I, <laughs> These looks tell me I need to explain a little bit more, so that's good. Mark, we're looking at chapter 4, where Jesus gave a beautiful illustration of this. And this is really what helped me understand this and make sense of it a little bit because I, I had to, you know, struggle with some of these thoughts that I'm sharing that maybe it's a bit of a hard saying to you. Mark 4, verse 28. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle because the harvest is come. Familiar with that parable? We all know it. There are different stages of development here according to Christ, correct? First stage that he mentions is what? Oh, let me, I'm not going to have enough room here, sorry. Okay, first the blade, right? Then what? Then the ear, then? Full corn, then what? Harvest, correct? That's what he says, different stages of development. And in this parable, Christ was really teaching what I refer to as relative perfection. In other words, the blade is a perfect blade as far as a blade is concerned at that stage and at that level. But the blade is not the full corn. That's another level. But it is a perfect blade, isn't it? And that grows, that develops, that matures until it reaches an ear. And an ear is a perfect ear as far as all the circumstances and available conditions to make a perfect ear. It reaches that standard. But it can never, the ear can never be a harvest while remaining here. It needs to go to this stage and this stage. You with me? It's a transformation and a growth. And at each level of growth, it needs to be a full, mature perfect blade or ear or corn for that level. This is a very important principle that actually helps us understand what's happening here in the world. So it's a 
Yes. But what is available to bring about the harvest is not yet available at this stage. You with me? And when we, when we look at this and we transpose this onto the bigger scale of the human existence and the human perfection plan that God has for us, that's why I was saying the people in the Old Testament were perfect as far as their level was concerned. But they were not perfect as far as this level is concerned. Because then was not the time of the harvest. Then was not the, the conditions that were available to bring about a harvest. The conditions that were available to bring about the harvest, harvest had to happen with the coming of Christ. With living this life to provide the next level or the next stage. You with me? And so if we were to, to chart this, there is a, there is a growth. And to deal with the sins of the past for sure. There is a certain growth. And this growth, the, the major step in this, maybe I should have done it in steps. Anyway, you get the idea. There is a, there is a certain progression. And so when Paul is talking about they without us should not be made perfect, he's talking about the perfection that is available to us here after Christ came. Before that, there was a perfection and a certain level and certain circumstances that they could reach and be perfect in that sphere, and many of them did. Some of them are in heaven. We are in another sphere, an advanced level, thanks to the coming of Christ. You with me? The corn is no longer a blade. We expect more from a corn than from a blade. Do you see the picture? And this is why we're talking about relative perfection. That's why the harvest could never happen before the cross. And what we know the harvest, and particularly the first fruits of the harvest, are known as who? The 144,000. The 144,000 were impossible to come about before the coming of Christ. Impossible. Because they needed the life of Christ the perfect sacrifice of Christ, him dealing with sin and bringing in everlasting righteousness, they needed that to enable them to come up to the next level, the harvest level. There is this progression, and this is when God will harvest the whole earth or the whole, uh, all his people. That's why they don't receive that full blessing of being harvested as well without us. They can't partake of the benefits of this perfection yet because they're still in the grave, until we are made perfect. Then, that's why he says, they, without us, should not be made perfect. Yes, some from the Old Testament. Yes, of course. Yeah, we're talking about the general, not the exceptions. We're talking about the, the whole church of Christ through the ages. All the believers from Adam till the last person. And so the coming of Christ, the promise being realized, brings that about. Uh, this is illustrated in a number of places. I want to look at a couple of verses because, like I said, this, this can sound a little, bit, uh, a little bit difficult. Let's look at uh, John 12, 24. John chapter 12 and verse 24. Why do I say that? I think it's clear, but just for any lingering doubts. John 12, verse 24. The Bible here, Jesus speaking, says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Who was he talking about? Himself. He is this corn of wheat, the seed that falls and dies. Unless he dies, he would abide what? Alone. There is no fruit. Who are the fruit? Or what is the fruit? That's us. So the coming of Christ and the death of Christ is a necessary event to bring about fruit in the harvest. If he did not come, we would only ever get to, maybe, but we wouldn't have anything at all, but just to follow the illustration. Are you with me? That's why we're saying people before he came and died could not reach the level of harvest. It just wasn't available to them. And God did not expect them to reach what was impossible for them. We have this 
strange notion of perfection sometimes that does not take into account circumstances, situations, and what is available. God is very honest and fair. God did not expect of them what was not available for them to reach. God did not expect them to be harvest. God did not expect them to be 144,000 to face the image of the beast. This stuff was totally irrelevant and unavailable to them. They reached the maximum. And it's no less perfection. Don't think it's, it's, a, it's a lower standard that God has different standards. They reached the standard of perfection that God requires up to what is available to them and the circumstances that they lived in. You want proof of that? Just look at Enoch. He's in heaven. That's an unanswerable argument. But he lived before the cross. Enoch is included in the list that did not receive the promise. Brothers and sisters, we have something prepared for us. We have some better thing for us than what Enoch had. Do we realize that? I know that's a big claim. I'm talking about when Enoch was on earth. We have the reality of the fulfilled promise. We have the life of Christ available to us now. You with me? This is what the book of Hebrews is trying to to bring out, this is what Paul is trying to, to, the point he's trying to make, to encourage the believers who were faltering, who were having a hard time, who were starting to doubt, who were starting to look at all the other things that might be better than being a Christian. And revert, that's exactly right. Let's look at, well, I don't know, look at all the verses. You know the parable. Parable of the talents, and then in the end Jesus says, for to whom much is given, much is required. They were not given as much as we are given. We were given a lot more. It's a progressive revelation. It's exactly right. There is an advancement of light. We have more light now than there was before. Isn't that right? We have more scriptures. than Some of these people didn't even have a Bible. God's revelation through the ages has been advancing. And we are standing on the shoulders of giants. We have a lot more. That should enable us to reach the standard of perfection that God expects at this stage of development, which is harvest. I'll give you a quick example of that. The book of Hebrews begins with that. Paul sets up that contrast. The book of Hebrews begins by saying, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, spake unto the fathers how? By the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us how? by his son. Is there a different way to speak? God spoke here through prophets. God spoke here through his son. Which is a superior way to communicate and speak? Through who? Through the son. God definitely spoke here. Make no mistake about it. He spoke. But now he speaks to us in a clearer, more marked manner. We are given much because God expects us to reach a level that has not been reached before because the sacrifice of Christ makes all the difference. Yes, of course. Christ is the only revelation of God and when God speaks through His Son, that's the ultimate revelation. Even... Correct. The, sac the life of Christ now enables us to reach the final stage that brings us to the harvest and therefore brings in. That's why he had to come, he had to die, and he rose. That's why his resurrection, which is him receiving this life and bestowing it on us on the day of Pentecost, is everything to us. When the kingdom was established and all these things, link all the things we're talking about together. It's a really pretty picture. Okay, let's, let's see how we can... Uh, look, even in heaven we'll be growing, right or wrong? That's, there's your relative perfection all the way in the kingdom. So that, that, that illustrates that well. Let's go to Matthew 11. We're, we're running out of time, man. Matthew 11. Christ illustrates this difference a number of ways. One, of, one example I want to explore here is Matthew 11, verse 13. We touched on that briefly yesterday. I want to explore it in detail just to emphasize the point a little bit more. Matthew 11:13 says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until... John, right? John lived here or just before Christ? John the Baptist. It says all the law, meaning before him, all the law and the prophets prophesied until John. What does that mean? You ever thought about that? Okay. 
Okay, John, in other words, Christ is using John as a transition point, as a marker in time to indicate a certain shift, a certain change. Other verses explain it better. Let's go to the parallel verse in Luke 16. Something would change after John. That's the implication here. Luke 16 and verse 16. Luke 16 and verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. Now we're going back to the subject we're talking about, the kingdom of God. It says the law and the prophets were until John, until this point. From this point, from John, the kingdom of God is preached. And we saw that it was preached for how long? Till Christ died, and then it was established, correct? So the law and the prophets were until John, and from that time, the kingdom of God is preached. That is the burden of the prophets and the law. The prophets and the law. What, what Christ is saying here is that the, the theme that was occupying all the prophets and the law, what they all were pointing forward to, John stands as the one who ushers it in. Yes, and we're going to come to that verse. And John ushering it in is what Christ is referring to when he says, until John, and from that time, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is preached. Meaning, before that time, it wasn't preached. It was promised. It was prophesied. It was the burden of the law and the prophets. But from this point, something is beginning to take change. There is a transition. There is a before and after. And this helps us also understand what Paul's talking about in Hebrews 11. That's why we, we covered a lot of that. That's why when, when, the, <clears throat> when the kingdom of God, when Jesus preached the kingdom of God is at hand, and when Jesus died and rose and ascended on heaven, we read this verse yesterday in Revelation 12.10. It said, now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God. This kingdom that John preached, that Christ preached, was now established here, the kingdom of God. And we saw yesterday that this kingdom of God begins first as a spiritual kingdom, and we're waiting for the physical. But the kingdom of God is already here, brothers and sisters. What did Jesus say? For the kingdom of God is, is within, right? Is in you or among you. That happened when Christ died, when Christ rose, and on the day of Pentecost, it was declared with power. That's the setting up of the kingdom of God. God prepared some better thing for us. Are you seeing the, the, as the picture developed here? And this allows us to go to the next level. Let's go to Luke chapter 7. Jesus very clearly sets up a, a very amazing distinction. And, and we miss it, and so we miss what we have. Luke 7, 28. Man, our time is finished. Luke 7, 28. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. You ever thought about that verse? Let's think about this verse together for a minute. I just want to understand this verse together. This shows an incredible point of, of demarcation, a line of distinction, a very clear before and after. Christ presents John as the greatest of all the prophets. Correct? Would, would it be safe to say that according to Jesus, John is greater than anyone listed in Hebrews 11? Would, would that be a safe statement to say? So according to Jesus, John is the greatest of all the prophets, all the ones that preceded him, Enoch, Moses, Abraham, Elijah, Daniel, name it. According to Christ, the one who stands at the very top of that mountain is John the Baptist. You with me? And then he says something very startling. And then he goes on to say what? But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What is the kingdom of God that he referring to? So he that is least here, from here on, he that is least from here on is greater than who? 
is greater than the greatest person of all the prophets from before the cross. You with me? That's why in Hebrews it says, God prepared some better thing for us. Brothers and sisters, we don't have a clue what we have. We honestly do not have a clue or appreciate, as we should, the blessings that we have living here. We have this greater thing. As a matter of fact, some of us wish we were living there, right? Maybe when the Red Sea opened or with a pillar of cloud and where all these mighty miracles and things, we wish we were living there. These people wish that they were living where we are. Nobody's happy where they are, huh? He that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. I want you to think about that for a minute. Was John the Baptist in the kingdom of God that Christ was referring to? The, I'll, I'll relieve you the stress. The answer is no. He died before this kingdom was set up. Am I saying he's not going to be in heaven? No. Because the kingdom of God is not heaven. That's, that's, we missed that. We always think kingdom of God is heaven. No. The kingdom of God was established here on earth as a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of his people. That is Christ living in his disciples. The day of Pentecost is proof of that. John the Baptist died before he saw the glory of the day of Pentecost. What Jesus is basically saying, saying, listen, the least one who sees this, who is in this, who experiences this, has a greater standing than John. He can reach the next level. John didn't have that. He died before that. Yes, he was just here and, and he ushered. The, he said the kingdom is at hand. He died before it came about. Do we realize what we have? Brothers and sisters, that is incredible news. For, super good news. Good news plus plus. This is what Christ brought to us. And that's what Paul is talking about. The day without us should not be made perfect. And you know when we say that he that is least is, is greater than John, you know, we're very averse to, to try and say oh, something's better or someone is better than another. It's not a, a strange thing to say because the ear is better than the blade, right? And the full corn is better than the ear. And the harvest is better than all these. But it doesn't mean that these are bad. This is a good blade, but this is another level. This reaches another standing. This is what Christ is meaning. He says, he that is least in the kingdom is better than John. Not that John is bad and you're better than him. No, you can reach now because of what God has made available. You can reach a higher standing, a higher place than John ever could. He brought a new element of life. Yes, that's exactly right. That is exactly right. And so this is what the burden of the scriptures is. I'll just close quickly here. I think we get the point. Let's go to Galatians chapter 4. We have the promise, brothers and sisters, already realized. It is fulfilled. It is ours. This better thing, this kingdom, this promise of the ages. Galatians 4, 6. We just have another couple of verses. We'll close with those. Galatians 4, 6 says, And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Spirit of His Son after the cross is not identical to that Spirit before the cross, is it? It's not identical. There is a difference. What is the difference? The difference is the experience of Christ on earth. It doesn't mean it's a different spirit. It's the same spirit, but it has a brand new and different element. An element that was not available before. It is the life and experience and victory of Christ. That's why Paul says, they all died having not received the promise. God having prepared something better. For us, because you are sons, God gets sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. Let's go to another verse, Galatians 3. You know, when, we, when, when, when I understood this, some of these verses took on a whole new impact. It's like, wow. It's just something else. It's, it's so good, you almost think, no, no, this is unbelievable. No, 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 no. That's right. Galatians 3 is where we're going, uh, verse 14. Galatians 3, 14. Galatians 3, 14. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles 
through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That blessing of Abraham, the blessing that was promised to Abraham, that's what he's talking about. The blessing that was promised to Abraham here now can come upon us. How? Through Jesus Christ. That's what made the difference. That's why Abraham looked forward to it. That's why Abraham believed it. He saw it afar off, and because of his faith in the promise that was to come, God rewarded that faith. That promise has now come. And through Jesus Christ, we receive this promise of the Spirit through faith. That's the Spirit. That Spirit is the life of Christ. That's the active ingredient of the kingdom of God. This kingdom of God is also known as the new covenant, right? There's many, many, many different phrases and terms that the scripture uses, or the kingdom of grace, or the covenant of grace, or the New Testament. The new covenant, which, yes, allows a new birth in a way that wasn't yet realized. Yes, there is a whole heap of aspects that relate to the very life of Christ, having lived here. We can't, see, we can't deny this. We have a very, oh, I'm going to take time here, but I'll just clarify. We have a problem among us sometimes because of the belief in the absolute perfection. We like to have everything absolute because that's how we maintain a continuum and everything is fair. So to suggest that something is available here that wasn't available here, a lot of people find that as unfair. But remember, our standard of what's fair and not fair is not God's standard. That's our standard. That's our opinion. God clearly said this is how he did it. And it doesn't mean it's unfair. Circumstances were that Jesus didn't live here or here or here. God in his wisdom saw that the fullness of time would happen here. Yes, as the need is bigger. And, and in his wisdom, there's a whole heap of reasons for that. And so when we say the spirit that is available to us now comes to us with the experience of Christ that wasn't available before, that's not to put people down or to make God unfair. That's what God said. We're simply believing what he said. It is our unbelief of what he says that puts us in a place where we just stay in the stasis and we just hope and wish that we're better someday, one day, not today. We don't realize what we have because we want to maintain a standard status quo, because to us it seems fair. And now it's fair, great, but now we totally miss out on all the privileges that we have because we're trying to equate something that God never told us to do or to expect. God doesn't say, try and maintain everything the way it is to keep me fair. He actually tells us, you have something here that wasn't there. Do you believe God or not? That's the question. Yes, the New Testament and the Old, yes, that's, that's exactly right. It's a greater revelation. We have a greater revelation. So then say, oh, someone might say, well, you're saying God speaks to us more clearly and he wasn't speaking clearly to them. That's not fair. Who are you to decide what's fair for God to do? Eleventh, okay, that's a good point. The 11th hour parable was unfair. That's exactly what the people said in the parable, right? You know, they came at the last hour and they got the same reward and they said, how come this was? And the, and the master told them, what's it to you what I do with my money? And God's saying, what's it to you what I do with my son and how I plan the plan of salvation? What's it to you? I'm doing it, not, not you. All I ask for you is to believe it, not to modify it so that it fits what you think should be fair or not fair. You with me? I'm saying this because I've had discussions with people where some of the things that are said here are seen to be totally wrong because of this line and because of relative perfection, all that. We just simply read what the Bible said, brothers and sisters. We can stay on the normal plane and continue for the next 100 years and not rise to the level that God wants us to rise without realizing what we have in Christ. We can stay there. I'm not interested in doing that. Let us grasp a hold of what we have. Let us appreciate what we have in Christ. We've been given much, and God expects rightly much as a result. Okay, last verse, and we'll close. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Yes, Hebrews chapter 9 is where we're going. We'll close with that. And I think, uh, I think it's clear enough. We've already gone way over time, forgive me. But I just want to make sure it's clear, that's all. And it's, it's, it's worth clarifying if it helps. Hebrews chapter 9 is where we're going. Verse 14 is what we're reading. Hebrews 9, 14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's his point in Hebrews. Saying, listen, you people reading my epistle, you have the blood of Christ. The seed that was promised has come. It has died. He is resurrected. He is now our high priest in heaven. He is ministering his life, his blood, this blood of the new covenant. How much more can that purge and perfect your conscience than the law that these people had before that did not make them perfect? Paul is basically reminding the Hebrew believers, saying, listen, look at Christ. See what we have in Christ. That better thing that we have is the crucified and risen Christ, who is our high priest, ministering the blood of the new covenants. Do we partake of that blessing? Are we benefiting from that blessing? Or are we sitting at the edge of the shore wondering whether we're going or not? There's a whole ocean of blessings that God has poured on us. Let us, by faith, brothers and sisters, grasp a hold of that. Let us not fear. Let us not draw back. Let us hold fast the beginning of our profession and our confidence. That's my appeal. And that's my challenge to you. Let us believe God. Because if we believe, Jesus said, all things are possible to him that believes. If we don't believe that this is available, we will never reach a stand that God wants us to reach. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through his son, Jesus.